Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360 here in Washington. And joining me now from our New York studio is co-host and Law 360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. Welcome, Natalie. How's it going? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Um, I feel like this has been the week that we have all been waiting for. (laughs) It's been marked on our calendars. Um, You know, big oral arguments in two Supreme Court cases this week, which we're going to be talking about. We're going to have John Hill, our senior banking reporter, on later um, to talk about the CFPB case that we've been watching. Um, we're also going to be getting into the June medical case, which also made some news outside the courtroom. Yeah, it takes a lot to kind of pierce through all the noise that's going on these days. But uh, Senator Chuck Schumer managed to do it uh, Wednesday uh, during oral arguments in the major uh, abortion case when he was outside the court. And he said... Um, Uh, I'll quote here. He said, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you've released the whirlwind. You will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. They kind of bounced around social media pretty much instantly. And, uh, you know, it met a lot of conservative backlash, including uh, one very powerful conservative, Chief Justice John Roberts of the uh, United States Supreme Court, who basically issued a very rare public rebuke of the Senate minority leader statements. Yeah, he did not take kindly to the tenor and uh, the wording that Senator Schumer had um, when he was talking about and name calling um, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. So he said, you know, these uh, these kind of remarks are not just inappropriate; they are dangerous. So it was it was definitely kind of a, a very strong, intense, I think, interaction uh, between the two publicly. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, uh, Senator Schumer, he uh, yesterday via his spokesperson, he kind of denied any, you know, any uh, wrongdoing in connection with his words outside of the, the Supreme Court. But he's since walked that back. I just uh, received word that uh, he's now uh, kind of reg- publicly regretted using those words, but still kind of saying that the, a little bit of the uh, Republican outrage on the part of his colleagues, some of whom have I believe are planning to introduce a motion to censure him is a little bit overblown. So kind of a half apology there. But anyway, I just figured, you know, we kind of had to mention that because we talked a little bit last week about the dust up between uh, uh, President Trump and and Justice uh, Sotomayor in Ginsburg. So, you know, there you had one scenario where it was uh, a liberal justice on the receiving end of uh, 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 an attack from a Republican politician. And now you have vice versa. So it's all what goes around comes around, I guess. Uh, Speaking of partisan dust-ups, among the cases the Supreme Court took up this week was one that we've talked about in the past um, regarding the Affordable Care Act. And it's one where the Democrats are basically asking the court to once and for all, you know, settle whether the Affordable Care Act is constitutional or not. Yeah, so this comes out of the Fifth Circuit. Um, there was a ruling in uh, a Republican challenge to the Affordable Care Act that Democrats say has cast a lot of legal uncertainty um, over the fate of the law. And you want to just set up why that is. And basically, this comes out of a district court ruling even before that, that essentially uh, struck down the entire ACA. Yeah, so basically, there's this you know question about the mandate to ma- maintain health insurance, which the Supreme Court upheld in 2012, because of, you know, basically a technicality with Congress's taxing power, you know, that 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 gave it the power to to give this mandate. Um, But now the taxing penalty has been eliminated. A lower court said, well, you can't have this mandate. And frankly, if you throw that out, you should throw out the whole Affordable Care Act. Yeah, in the Fifth Circuit, it didn't exactly agree with everything. It, it, it agreed on the individual mandate point, but on the what we'll call the severability point, which will 
actually come up in the next segment as well about the CFPB case. Um, they said that, you know, the district court had to go back and kind of show its work and explain a little bit in more detail why the rest of the law should fall since the individual mandate should fall. But yet, I mean, it's it's got huge consequences, um, and the Supreme Court will likely hear this case um, in the fall, given that, you know, the current term is pretty much already packed up with oral arguments. Next up, we have a special guest in the studio uh, here in New York with me, uh, our senior banking reporter, John Hill, who has been covering the CFBB case that we've been talking so much about in the run-up to the oral arguments on Tuesday. John, welcome. Uh, It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yes, so you've been kind of in the trench here (laughs) covering uh, the the ins and outs of this case, so we definitely kind of want to get into the 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 kind of nitty-gritty of what happened on Tuesday. But but first to start off, could you tell us a little bit just about the CFPB and what the, the kind of main crux of this case is about? Sure. I'm actually surprised. Uh, you know, I, I talk with my friends sometimes. They don't know what the CFPB is. I never have heard of it before. But, uh, you know, it's an independent regulator that was created after the financial crisis to really look out for consumer protection in financial services. There were obviously a lot of abuses that happened during the financial crisis, and so this was created to respond to that. Now, it was given some special features. Um, you know, independence is one of them, and it gets that in a few ways, one of which is through an independent funding stream. It can fund itself through the Federal Reserve. But more importantly for this case, uh, its independence also comes from the way that its single director is protected from removal. So the president cannot fire the CFPB director under the Dodd-Frank Act for uh, any reason. There have to be a few special reasons, and the language that the law uses is uh, inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. But really, the way that we all talk about it is for cause. So you have to have a good, solid reason, good justification to fire the director. And so can I just ask about the, you know, kind of the stakes of the case? Because obviously, you know, uh, maybe the Supreme Court says that, yes, uh, this is a problem for the CFPB, and they make it so that the president can fire the head of it at will. But why is it does it, it doesn't just end there, right? There's this whole other question of whether that's intertwined with the rest of the CFPB and just whether it can stand. Yeah, that's right. You know, so, so the, the for-cause removal itself, you know, one of the, the questions is, is this constitutional? Is it okay for the director to be protected in this way, to have this level of independence? There are certainly critics of the Bureau who say no, and one of those critics is uh, Sela Law. They're the ones who are bringing this appeal, really. They've been fighting the CFPB on this issue ever since uh, a case about in California when the CFPB took them to court to enforce an investigative demand on them. So, so there is this, this question of the constitutionality of that protection. But as you are alluding to there, you know, there is the question, once you reach that decision, you know, if you do say it's unconstitutional, what do you do with it? Can you just get rid of that alone or do you have to do more? You know, is the the entire structure of the Bureau, you know, does it hinge on this independence given to its director? And if so, then you have to get rid of the whole thing, (laughs) kick it over to Congress to start over. So this is, uh, I, I think, a lot uh, echoes a lot of what we were just talking about uh, with the Affordable Care Act case. It has to do with this this term called severability, right? Uh, could could you kind of talk us through exactly what that is and, and what that means? Sure. So so severability is really about whether um, you know parts of a law can survive if other parts of the law are found to be unconstitutional. You know, generally courts don't like to strike down entire laws just because some tiny piece of it is problematic. Uh, you know, they, they want to do the uh, restrained thing and they like to leave as much of the law intact as possible. So 
they do that for a few reasons. One of is you don't want to create chaos. You know, laws can be very big and complicated, and so just taking out the whole thing is actually very disruptive. It's also because they don't really want to step on the toes of Congress. They don't want to get into the uh, position of second-guessing what Congress did by just saying, nope, let's get rid of all of it. So, you know, you, you have to consider, well, at the same time, uh, could you be stepping on Congress's toes in another way? You know, if, if you get rid of a key part of the law, it's possible that the entire law won't work, that maybe that, that particular provision that was unconstitutional is also the linchpin of the way the law works. So they, they judges, when they are confronted with the question of whether a provision is constitutional and what to do with it after, they have to kind of go through this analysis where they look at, well, first of all, does the rest of the law function still if you remove this one piece? And then second, you know, would Congress have wanted it this way? Would they have been willing to have this kind of watered-down version of the law, or would they prefer to have no law at all? If they prefer to have no law at all, maybe the whole thing goes. If they would be okay with having this, you know, sort of adjusted version, well, then the court can conclude that the provision is severable, which allows the rest of the law to remain intact. So, John, so this California law firm, CELA Law, is asking the Supreme Court to kind of rule... Uh, on both of those questions, right? So that the, you know, the structure is unconstitutional because it doesn't give the president the power to remove the director at will. And also that, you know, it's so intertwined with the the, the actual purpose of the law that it, it can't be deemed severable. So how did the court react um, to those arguments that were made at, at oral arguments on, on Tuesday? Yeah, so, so the unusual thing about this case is that uh, CELA law and the Trump administration, you know, the CFPB slash Department of Justice are, are all on the same side. They all agree that this for-cause removal provision is unconstitutional. You don't really see that usually. You don't see an agency admitting, yeah, actually, we're unconstitutionally structured. So that's that's already kind of rare there. But, you know, where they don't agree is is the next step. It's is that severability question. See, the law, as, you know, Jimmy, you were saying there, does want that entire structure broken down. They say that, look, that this one piece is actually quite critical to the way the Bureau was structured, and they've uh, talked Tuesday about uh, how, how Elizabeth Warren, who helped kind of come up with the agency back in 2007, said that she wanted a strong consumer agency. And if she didn't get that, her second choice would be to have, uh, you, know, you know, blood and teeth on the floor. You know, so that she, she was, you know, seriously wanting a independent agency. And so that is sort of helping to demonstrate the degree to which this feature is actually quite important to the Bureau. The Trump administration, on the other hand, says actually, no, there is a severability clause in Dodd-Frank, which is a, a, a portion of the law that actually says, uh, you know, if one part of this law is found unconstitutional, then the rest can remain unaffected. So it, it is supposed to help address that question I was talking about before of congressional intent, saying to the courts, look, we uh, are fine with you taking out tiny sections, just don't strike the entire law. So the Trump administration is leaning on that. And this is something that it seemed there was uh, some sympathy from the judges for, that uh, Justice Kavanaugh in particular was, uh, I think, skeptical of the the CELA law argument that actually no, this provision is not severable uh, and kind of pushed the attorney uh, on that. And, uh, you know, the other justices didn't really give a lot of attention to the severability issue. And, 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 and uh, more broadly, no one was really talking about eliminating the Bureau. And I think that that's actually kind of a, a big takeaway from oral argument on Tuesday is that, you know, I, I, I would be quite surprised if after that oral argument, they went as far as eliminating the Bureau. That just was not given serious discussion. It was not not considered a possibility. In fact, really the only person to bring that up was at the very end, it was an attorney arguing in an amicus capacity for the House, House of Representatives, and saying, please don't do it. So, you know, I think that really the Bureau has probably dodged a bullet in that regard. The question now becomes, do they 
eliminate for cause removal, which is what you know everyone I've spoken to, financial services attorneys, uh, academic experts, and I'll say is the most likely outcome, or do they do something else? Do they they either hold uphold the structure as constitutional, which other courts have done, or do they find some you know escape hatch, which there's a court appointed attorney defending the bureau structure. That's again, that's because the CFPB, the you know the government basically, and CELA law are on the same side of that issue. So this this advocate who is arguing the opposite side has laid out some ways the court might get around this issue. There's some skepticism of those two. Jacques, well, it's been wonderful uh, to have you on and to kind of walk us through this this pretty intense and pretty complicated case. So we appreciate it. And uh, we'll be uh, watching with you, I think, to see just what the justices do end up doing, as, as you said. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a high stakes issue. Of course, there's an existential threat to the Bureau kind of here on the line. There's also the larger questions of agency independence and how much the president can control regulators. So all of these issues will uh, be informed by the decision in this case, and it will be one to watch. And now moving on to Wednesday's blockbuster arguments in a major abortion case this term. This one's called June Medical Services versus Russo. We talked about it last week a lot, so I won't go too in-depth into the details, but basically it involves a Louisiana law requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. Providers say that it's going to restrict access. They're difficult to comply with. They don't really have a lot of public benefits, and so they want to strike down that law at the Supreme Court. We didn't really learn a whole lot about what the Supreme Court's going to do on Wednesday. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts is considered kind of the swing vote in this case. Um, He did not uh, reveal his hand at oral arguments. He asked pretty neutral questions of all the sides, but basically he was really focused on how to reconcile um, this Louisiana law with the Supreme Court's 2016 decision in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt, which struck down a virtually identical law. So in that case, Justice Roberts actually dissented in Hellerstadt. But um, if, 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 you know, as we talked about um, a few few episodes back, I think, you know, he joined with liberal justices in a 5-4 vote um, last year to grant a stay application um, to block the Louisiana law from taking effect. So, you know, as you mentioned, you know, he's kind of like, right on the fence, it seems, on this issue. And, and it's it, and he was really kind of struggling to kind of come to grips with the precedent that the court set um, in Hellerstadt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he wants to know if Hellerstadt means that all of these admitting privileges laws should fall or if it should be kind of a case-by-case scenario where you look at the record, you look at the law's effects in that state on abortion access, um, and then you decide whether or not it poses a substantial obstacle. So, you know, obviously the uh, Lu- state of Louisiana is trying to distinguish its fa- it, the facts of its case from the Hellerstedt decision. Um, but, you know, we still don't know where he's going to come on on that. So, uh, you know, it, we didn't learn a whole lot, I should say. Yeah. Another, um, I think, key point that popped up in the arguments was Justice Alito was really focused on the standing issue. So this is, um, you know, the, there's a kind of, uh, an underlying kind of standing argument that the abortion providers who um, are the petitioners here, you know, shouldn't be allowed to represent their patients that, they, you know, this third party standing isn't really right to do because there's a conflict of interest. The Louisiana law, as it was passed um, by lawmakers, uh, you know, was passed uh, on the basis of they're saying, you know, it's a it's a safety issue for patients. You know, we need to have these admitting privileges to make sure that these abortions are safe. Um, now, the abortion providers are arguing that 
there's no real medical necessity that the Supreme Court, in fact, in Hellerstedt ruled that there's no actual medical benefit to these kind of um, you know, restrictions. Um, but there's an argument about the the standing of whether they should be allowed to make those arguments on behalf of their patients. And Justice Alito was really focused on that one, I, I feel. Yeah, and notably, I would say uh, the chief justice didn't ask any questions about standing. So if the, ca- if the case really comes down to him, it looks like this one could go to the merits. But, you know, Again, it could be another scenario where we're probably going to have to wait till the end of the term when the when the court's most uh, divisive rulings come down. Yeah, it's really, I think, tough luck for a lot of the watchers who are very invested in this case. Uh, they're just going to have to wait, um, like you said, till the, till the end of the term. Uh, for us, though, I think we've covered a lot of ground <laughs> this, today um, and this week. So I think that'll just about do it for us. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners. like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, John Hill and Jeff Overly. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.